0: I'm Calvin Mercer, glad to be with you today. I am a religious professor, religious studies professor, and for most of my career, I worked in the area of biblical studies, academic biblical studies. And about 15 years ago, I transitioned into working on religion and radical human enhancement. I had also done some stuff on religion and culture, so it was an okay transition So that's what I work on now. I'm an example of a scholar who kind of shifted into this work from another area of specialty. I'm seeing more and more younger scholars who, you know, writing PhD dissertations on this topic. This is their area of expertise from day one.
1: Mm -hmm. So before we dig into a little bit more of your work, we always ask this question. Our podcast is called I'm Immortal, a bit of a play on the words immortal. So, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you
0: Well, the dictionary definition of immortality is you know not dying but living forever forever is a long time you know immortality is not really an accurate word to use or, or the best word to use I mean I prefer radical or extreme life extension or super longevity or something like that so for me what Quote unquote, immortality means is the option of living indefinitely. And I would underscore healthy. And I think that's what proponents of this uh, are interested in. They're interested in healthy living indefinitely. I, I would just add one more thing uh, as to what immortality means to me is, you know, we all have core values. And one of my core values is efficiency. And it just seems rather wasteful to me to invest education, medical, you know, to bring someone to a fully functioning human being, and then to just have them die of cancer. And so I guess one of the reasons I am kind of involved in this work is my, it just seems so inefficient. Death seems an inefficient way to handle a fully functioning human being.
2: So I'm guessing based off of that, if you had the choice to take some sort of pill that would help you live, I guess, indefinitely, you'd be up for it then?
0: I certainly would want the choice. And I think for me, I would choose that. I chose a career as an academic. But the truth is, there's several careers I would like to play out. You know, I'd love to be a stockbroker. I'd love to be a an investigative reporter on a big newspaper. Uh, I'd love to be a fireman. You know, I can't play all those out in the four score and 20 that we have. And so, yeah, I would like that option. I mean, I am madly in love with Susan, my partner, and I would love to have the option of living a million years with her if we had healthy, youthful bodies. So, yeah, I would choose that for sure.
1: I love the fact that you mentioned like potential other careers. It's definitely one of the things I would love to do as well if I was immortal. And on the topic of careers, we've heard a little bit about you and we know that you practice clinical psychology at some point. So could you describe your journey going from clinical psychology to all of a sudden religion and its interactions with technology?
0: Well, uh, just a bit of a point there is that I have a degree in clinical psych and I practiced part-time for 10 years as a therapist, but I was doing that part-time as I was continuing my work as a religion professor. So that's my background in clinical psych. I've not used psychology specifically to kind of interpret and understand radical human enhancement. That needs to happen, but it's not something that I've done. My research area is in radical human enhancement, and particularly with a focus on religion. And just a, a comment about that, for better or worse, religion is plays a, a major role still in the world. I mean, there were those who predicted the termination of religion with the rise of science, the scientific world, but that has not happened. Human beings seem irrepressibly religious. Some would say irreformably religious. I think the Pew Research Center says that worldwide, 80% of the people are religiously affiliated in some way. And so religion is out there and it matters to people. And I'm I'm not making an argument that it's good or bad. Religion has kicked up Gandhi and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King Jr., and it's also played a role in colonialism and slavery. And so I'm not arguing that. But my point is that religion matters to people. And so for the conversation about radical human enhancement to unfold in a religious context and using religious ideas, kind of makes sense, because, you know, religious people vote and make decisions or help make decisions about funding of uh, scenarios that life extension proponents want. So that's my work. That's my goal. Uh, I guess one more point is that my work for about 15 years in this has been, you know, on the academic side, and I'll continue that. But in the last year or two, I've worked really, really hard to move the discussion from a small circle of academics into the general public. And I think religion can help do that. And the recent book that we wrote was a scholarly book, but tailored for a general audience. So I think it's very important that these questions get out in the public before decisions are made
2: that may not be in in all of our interest. I was going to say, when we were first doing this podcast, this is a bit of an aside, we were looking for a lot of sources on religion and life extension and all the transhumanism. And yours was the only book that we bought because we could not find many sources. So we really look forward to your books on religion and technological future. This one we read so far. It's Religion and the Implications of Radical Life Extension. It's a decade old, but it's for readers who are not well-versed in this whole field. So thank you for helping us in our journey as well.
0: Yeah. Well, that was actually the very first piece of work that I did. There's actually been three more co-edited volumes. If someone's interested in pursuing this in terms of what I've done, my suggestion is the latest work that came out in 2021, just a few months ago, which is kind of a culmination of a lot of my thinking about these issues and it's religion and the technological future.
2: Okay. So I guess before people get to the books, because your whole field's on religion and transhumanism, do you mind explaining what exactly transhumanism is to our listeners?
0: Transhumanism is a, it's an intellectual and cultural movement that advocates using a range of breakthrough, and I would say breathtaking in some cases, technologies and therapies in order to radically enhance human beings. And the way this has played out is that the enhancement has fallen into five categories. There's physical enhancement, and the physical enhancement, that we'll probably end up talking about this, that has gotten the most attention is super longevity. And we're not talking about living 120 years, but we're talking about terminating aging in the human species. Cognitive development or enhancement, and this gets us all into artificial intelligence. Affective or emotional enhancement, using pharma drugs and so forth, moral enhancement, which is a raging controversy right now among ethicists and academics, enhancing ourselves morally. There are those who say that our technologies are moving so fast that if we don't enhance ourselves morally, we're not going to be able to make good decisions. And then the you know one that I, of course, pay a lot of attention to is spiritual enhancement. The transhumanists tend to want to push forward on these five areas of enhancement. And there are organizations that are devoted to this, that the most prominent transhumanist organization is one called Humanity Plus. But there's also religious organizations, the Mormon Transhumanist Association, there's one called the Christian Transhumanist Association, and so on.
1: So you mentioned therapy and enhancement. So a question that I wanted to ask for the audience is, What's the difference between therapeutic intervention and enhancement, and where do we exactly draw the line in between the two?
0: So this is one way that we have to sort of talk about radical human enhancement is uh, think about it on a continuum of therapy on one end and enhancement on the other end. So therapeutic interventions would be interventions that bring us to normal functioning as opposed to enhancements that take us beyond normal human functioning, hence the word transhumanism. Now, that sounds simple enough. One kind of too simplistic way of thinking about it is that some might suggest that therapy is bringing us back to normal is okay. Enhancements are questionable. But what complicates this is that it's not crystal clear the distinction between therapy and enhancement, right? I mean, uh, two of us are wearing eyeglasses. So 2020 vision, to wear eyeglasses and get to 2020 vision, is that therapy or is that enhancement? Well, 2020 vision may be viewed as normal for the three of us, but what about major league baseball players in uh, the United States? Their normal vision is better than 2020. So, it gets tricky. Here's another thought about that is that interventions that are considered enhancements and radical enhancements over time become normal. Like pacemakers, for example, pacemakers were radical and radical enhancements, but now it's pretty normal, typical. So the radical becomes normal. And so what becomes an enhancement becomes therapy.
1: Mm, So in that example, with that logic, an insulin pump would be more of a therapeutic intervention than an enhancement.
0: Well, an insulin pump, I would think of that as maybe when they first came out, they were considered radical and on the edge and breakthrough. But now I think it's pretty normal, right? It's a typical kind of medical intervention. So I would call that normal. It brings a person back to normal functioning. I will call that therapeutic at this point.
2: I know some people are, in terms of when they think of all these technologies, I mean, I guess when the insulin pump first came out, or the pacemaker, people were calling it unnatural, right? It's sort of related, is it human nature to constantly want to make ourselves better and possibly to the point where we're almost destined to transcend ourselves beyond basic human biology?
0: Well, let me answer that in terms of religion. I think that in the religious traditions, I'll just pick one tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition. There is a sort of a vision that we transcend ourselves. And, you know, a concept that's pretty common in religion is resurrection, the Judeo-Christian tradition, resurrection. And resurrection, you know, involves a transformation which could cohere with what transhumanists want. So if you pick up on the biblical notion of resurrection in the Apostle Paul, just to pick one New Testament writer then the word is soma pneumaticum, body spiritual. Well, you know, that's a transformed body. It's not a normal body. It's a transformed body. It's glorious. It's powerful. It's indestructible. And I would think that sounds pretty good to transhumanists, to secular transhumanists, right, who advocate a redesigned, upgraded, changed existence that is not dependent upon this frail body that Mother Nature has given us. Transformation is uh, deeply embedded in the religious traditions, for sure. I also think that people in general, I think there's a deep-seated survival instinct. People in general want to transcend. I mean, why do we pour all this money into medical science and anti-aging kinds of therapies. We do it all the time. So yes, I think people do want to transcend in general.
1: You just mentioned transhumanists and this is something I heard you speak about on another podcast, but you mentioned how transhumanists are moving away from the word immortality. Could you just quickly explain why they're moving away from the word?
0: Let me maybe walk that back just a bit. I have not done a thorough study of how many times the term immortality has showed up over the years my impression, my sense of it, is that the word immortality was bandied about more freely, maybe in years past than in more recent years. I'll give you just a specific example. I don't want to get us off into a side issue that you don't want to discuss, but cryonics. Cryonics, that is preserving our bodies or minds, can be understood as a part of this whole conversation. ALCOR, A-L-C-O-R, which is, I would argue, is the leading cryonics organization. On their website, they make it very clear that cryonics is not a religion and it's not about immortality. They shun away from the word immortality. They want to leave that word to the religious people and that cryonics is a science or technology. And I think that there tends to be among transhumanists more interest in using the word immortality in a more careful way. The word immortality, we have to be careful how we use it, right? Because for religion, it means one thing. I mean, for the monotheistic religions uh, traditionally understood, immortality may mean you know, living forever with God, literally forever with God. Or in the karmic religions, transmigrating through incarnations until you reach moksha, enlightenment, the oneness. So immortality means one thing to religion. When transhumanists talk about immortality, if they use that word, you know they're not talking about living forever with God. They're talking about biological immortality or some sort of cyber existence. Ray Kurzweil, some sort of cyber existence. And really what you're talking about there is not immortality, like I said earlier, but you're talking about Indefinite existence because you know we could get hit by a bus or a supernova, I guess, theoretically could destroy it. So, we're not talking about immortality technically, even among transhumanists. So, that's a little nuance of that concept of immortality. It's still used, but I don't think it's used as much. Just an impression I have.
2: I was doing some reading, and I know that the body and life, at least from the Christian perspective, it's like a gift from God, it's important to preserve it, but at the same time at least Christians, if they eventually want to reach heaven, but they also might want to extend their own lives. It just seems like a sort of a contradiction. So could you maybe explain what the reasoning would be behind that?
0: Well, traditionally understood, the Christian vision or the Christian hope is to live eternally with God, but you do it in a transformed state. So you have to be willing to, in a sense, give up yourself in order to gain it, to give up your life in order to gain the glorious life with God. Does that speak to what you're saying?
2: Yeah, because I was confused because if Christians had the opportunity to live longer, right, would they take it? Maybe there's a technology that helps you live indefinitely or in some cyberspace, right? It feels weird because in my head, it seems like you're putting yourself almost at the level of God or transcending yourself, but not in the way that maybe the doctrine would dictate.
0: Let me approach it this way. You know, religion and any particular religion you're using Christianity there are lots of Christians out there and lots of organizations, denominations, branches. And so it is of course problematic to generalize about all Christians. So I would say that what we're gonna see is we're gonna see it break out into different categories. So one way to break out religion in all the different traditions is liberal conservative. And so conservative tends to be traditional keep things the way they are. And sometimes extreme conservatism is anti-science, whereas liberal religion is open to science, views science as the way in which God works in the world. So these technologies of life extension, therapies and technologies of life extension, they very well break out on the liberal conservative spectrum. And I could see some conservative Christians, if you want to use that religion as an example, as avoiding some of these technologies because they are the product of the worldly science. They're going to avoid that, but it's going to be very complicated because some liberals in circles that I operate in are very, very leery of some of these technologies and therapies because they're worried that they're going to be the privilege of the wealthy and the powerful. So this is going to create some very interesting, what I have called very interesting bedfellows where you're going to have liberals and conservatives may be on the same side of the issue, but for different reasons. So liberals may be concerned about the justice issues, social justice issues, the fairness issues, but they may be open to them as long as those issues can be addressed. They may be open to life extension if it promotes well-being, whereas conservatives may oppose it. However, even conservatives have this what I would call this deep-seated self-preservation instinct and trait that may make them figure out a way to accept it anyway. So I think it's going to be complicated. I wouldn't want at this point to generalize. Religions are going to split up. They're going to split on how they handle this new world that's coming up.
1: Mm -hmm. You've partially answered this question already, but I was a little bit curious as to whether we can expect either new religions or new versions or updated versions of religions to come up with you know, new technologies, some of which would include life extension technologies, or potentially some other technologies that are coming up like superintelligence or ways to physically upgrade our bodies. Do you think we can expect something like that?
0: Yes, I do. In the book that we just published, my co-author and I just published, the very first sentence in the book is something like this, that the religions of the world are going to come to an end or thrive depending upon how they address the issues that we three are talking about right now. Okay. Now, my guess is that the religions are going to adapt and interpret these technologies in a way that religion will continue. So I think that because religion has a I'm a historian of religion, and religion evolves and changes over time, over the centuries, in order to adapt. I mean, religion impacts the surrounding culture, and it's influenced by the surrounding culture both. Religion is what I call nimble. So I do think that religion is going to find ways of embracing and adapting to the kinds of radical enhancements that we're talking about. And I'll I'll give you just one category of examples. There's a new book out that I'm reviewing now called Spirit Tech, which talks about all the different kind of ways technology is beginning to be used for religious purposes. I'll just give you one example. I'm not sure I got the exact term right, but it's transcranial ultrasound stimulation. And this is stimulating parts of the brain that might maximize the possibilities of some sort of religious or mystical experience. And this ultrasound is so precise that you actually have to use MRIs to map the brain and figure out exactly where to go. The same book has a category talking about hallucinogenic agents and theogens, hallucinogenic agents that are increasingly used for mental health purposes, but also can have some spiritual benefits. So there was back in the 60s, Tim Leary and Richard Alprota were kicked out of Harvard for doing research and it kind of went away. And now there is active research that is going on about hallucinogenic agents and their impact on spiritual experiences. So I'm just giving you those as examples of how religion is already beginning to kind of look at and embrace some of these technologies. We could also talk about There's a virtual church out there. We're already seeing with COVID-19, we're seeing technology used more and more. I mean, right now, we're not together physically. I mean, we're using technology. So this is going to ramp up, and religion is going to find ways of embracing and interpreting this. And I mentioned earlier that we already have the Christian Transhumanist Association and the Mormon Transhumanist Association, organizations that are already kind of embracing these therapies and technologies for religious purposes. I think religion is going to persist. It's predicted termination has not come true. I think it's going to persist, and I think it's going to embrace and interpret these uh, technologies. And I'll add one more thing is that I think religion can help in interpreting radical human enhancement for the general population, religion can give some guidance in terms of, for example, ethical considerations, just to give an example.
2: From what Sufl and I, we understand the rate of new technologies coming out is increasing faster and faster. And we also know, well, like any technology, the you typically get it first. But even considering that, not everyone may be accepting of it. They may have the choice where they say, I don't want to have super longevity or be uploaded something like that. It seems like this will cause a lot of inequality issues in society. So is there any way that we should be thinking about that? Or how can we deal with that sort of problem if it comes about?
0: You've asked a great question and put your finger on a really serious issue. We deal with racism, sexism, classism. And there are those who are worried now that this is going to create just a new division within society where the wealthy powerful have access to this. Or maybe it may not have to do with just access via wealth. It may be choice, right? It may be that some people who have the means choose not to participate in these interventions. And so the concern is that we're going to get yet another ism out there, the enhanced and the normals, right? I've already told you my choice. I will be one of the enhanced but this is a real concern. Are we moving into yet another division in society? I'm really just repeating what you said, which is kind of articulating the challenge and the problem. We'll have to put our backs to the grindstone and, and work on it in terms of addressing this.
2: We're getting more into like ethics and futuristic society, but on that same note, new technologies will come out, but is there ever a case where we should not develop a technology or we should deny someone? The right to it. We're focused on life extension a lot. When should you approve this technology for everyone versus when you should not be releasing it or hold back on it?
0: I think maybe respond to that question by introducing a concept that is used to evaluate these therapies and technologies, precautionary versus proactionary. Precautionary approach would be slow and easy, worry about the safety issues, worry about the unexpected side effects, you know, work all that out. That would be the precautionary approach. The proactionary approach is, look, there are dangers, but the advantages of moving full steam ahead outweigh the potential dangers. And so we should be proactive, not precautionary, because there's just too much at stake. Too many people die of disease and aging, and this is such a big problem. We need to proactively address this. And transhumanists, of course, tend to be proactive, proactionary in their stance on this. That's just one way to kind of think about it. Some people are more cautious, some are more proaction. You know, is there one right way or wrong way? It may be that it depends on the particular technology and therapy. Maybe we don't do a broad sweep, but we look at each particular therapy and technology. How dangerous is it versus What benefits can it bring? And that may help us decide technology by technology, whether to proceed or not.
1: So just jumping back a little bit, you mentioned how we already have things like, you know, segregation classism that exists in the current world. Looking at technologies other than life extension technology or including it as well, do you think that a new form of classism could arise from things like that? Like, say, I'm an individual who has a 500-year lifespan because I was part of a trial that got a 500-year lifespan versus, and now I'm part of a community of people who live that long. Can you expect some sort of segregation or classism from that type of stuff?
0: People worry about that, worry about that that is what's going to develop. Yes, a new concern about the enhanced and the normals. If it has to do with life extension and it has to do with whether people can get access or not, let's say a new technology comes that terminates aging. And the question is, is it just going to be for the wealthy? If there's anybody who's laser focused on terminating aging in the human species, it would be Aubrey de Grey. But I've heard Aubrey say that it's not going to be a situation, if we're talking about life extension, it's not going to be a situation where one day we wake up and there's a pill and we can live for 500 years. It's not going to be that way. It might be something more like we quadruple the lifespan of a mouse, and because people know... About the transferability of research from a mouse to humans, they can see that this is coming. So it hits the front page. You know, we've got a mouse that can live 10 times longer. It hits the front page, but it may be 10 years before this gets to where humans have access to this therapy. And I've heard Aubrey say that in that period of time between when we know it's coming and when it dawns upon the public that it's coming, that we have the cure for aging. And when it gets here, There's going to be such enormous pressure, social pressure on the holders of this technology to demand that it be widely distributed. In other words, the wealthy and the powerful are simply not going to be able to hold this to themselves. The demand, the survival instinct, the fountain of life or the fountain of youth or whatever is so strong in our our psyche that we're just going to demand this. Now, the comeback to that is that Well, you know, education is something that everybody needs and wants and food is, but we certainly have disparities about that. So the debate can go back and forth.
2: In terms of, because you said there'll be an overwhelming amount of support for this technology. But one thing I was considering was just based on my own personal experience. Surprisingly, I'm not a smartphone user, despite us talking about the future of technology a lot. And one thing that worries me personally is, I think in China, at least, they're starting to introduce something where you can only pay for things using a smartphone and they're trying to get rid of physical cash, right? So if I were to go to China, I would not survive unless I had a smartphone. So my question is, for something like life extension technology, will there always be an option for life extension or for any sort of transhumanism thing where it's always my body and my choice? Or do you think society will almost force me to conform so much because without having that enhancement or that technology or therapy, I just can't survive in society?
0: Let me take a shot at that and see if it answers your question. If not, you can come back. I think that transhumanists, generally speaking, they want these technologies and therapies to be available to everyone who chooses to utilize them, but not forced on anyone. That seems to be a pretty core value among transhumanists. And I I support that in the book that we just published. You know, we talk about the ethics of all this, and one of the key things that we push in each chapter with each one of the enhancements, whether it's mental or physical or emotional or whatever, is choice, that we affirm the value of choice, and we want people to have a choice. I would hope as we move into the world that is a warning that there's a number of values we need to hold firm to, and that's one of them, I think, as we move into this world is making sure that people have the choice, that they have fair access, and then if they want the technologies, they have that choice.
2: On that note, we're focusing on choice, but say, me as 20 years old, I don't know what my 200-year-old self would want. Maybe by the time I'm 200, I want to age normally, or I don't want to have all these enhancements. So for technologies like life extension that develop, should they be developing an undo option for everybody as well?
0: Yeah, I would extend that core value of choice to that level, and I would say that people who participate in these therapies and technologies, if they get tired, they should be able to give it up. We address that issue now, which is called physician-assisted suicide or physician-assisted death. Of course, that breaks out in with or without consent, but I certainly would advocate that to personalize it. If I get to live 500 years and I get tired and and I want to check out, then I certainly should be able to not participate. I would hope that there would be a, as long as it's done mentally in a healthy way, yes, I would advocate for that. Absolutely, I would. I mentioned psychology earlier, and I think psychologists need to get engaged in this. So there is a field of psychology called developmental psychology. Right, how the stages with which we move through in a normal human life, right? You got Piaget, uh, Lawrence Kohlberg talking about moral development, Eric Erickson on the religion side down at Emory University, there was James Fowler talking about the stages of faith. So we've done a lot of work on human development and the various stages that we move through. That may be, you know, a field where they need to get engaged in. What's this going to be like when people start living to be not 120, but 520? And so the kinds of questions that you're asking in that last question, we need to begin kind of thinking about those because we don't really at this point, I think have much of a clue, maybe no clue what it's going to be like psychologically to wake up one morning and you're 500 years old. We don't know how that's going to be. And so I think developmental psychology might begin to help us as we move into that.
1: So now that we've spoken about the developmental psychology of living longer, speaking more generally, how do you think people will live differently if biological aging no longer existed? Like you, for example, mentioned that you would work as a firefighter and you know travel or whatever it may be. How do you think life will change for people?
0: Well, the traditional marriage is "I marry you until death do us part." I mean, that's a long time if you're talking about five hundred years. So, just to pick one example, marriage. Traditions and marriage customs and practices, I think, will probably undergo a change. I read recently, just a couple of days ago, about gray divorce, G-R-E-Y, gray divorce. That is, at least in, in my country, in the United States, seniors, older Americans, are now getting divorced at a much higher rate than in the past. I mean, what's in the news is Bill Melinda Gates, right? Yeah. That's complicated, and there's a lot of reasons why they think that's happening. But one is that people are just living longer, living you know a few decades longer, right? Maybe plays a role in increasing divorce rates. You start living to be 500 years, I mean, that just really crashes the tradition, the paradigm. So we'll probably maybe see people moving through many different relationships, jobs. If I were living a 1,000 years, I would get to be an investigative reporter and a fireman. Absolutely. So, you know, it will impact the structures of our life for sure. What I'm trying to do is to get a society talking about this and thinking about this, because I do think it's coming to some degree or another.
1: Mm-hmm. Just to follow up on that, it's more of a thought rather than a question. But do you think that like marriage it traditionally is attached to religion, depending on what your religion is, your marriage and how you get into it is different? Do you think these ideas of living longer and gray divorces or, you know, potentially having more than one partner over a long lifetime will affect religions in a large way?
0: Yes. I mean, religion is big on ritual. I think all of the rituals of the religions will be impacted in one way or another. Religion has rituals that, generally speak, the religions of the world have rituals that follow people through the various stages of life and help navigate those stages. And so... If and as the technologies and therapies extend life well beyond four score and 20, then the religions are going to have to adjust their rituals in order to serve people through those various stages. How that will happen, how that will unfold,
2: I don't know yet, but pretty sure it will happen. I'm suspecting as a personal guess, we're going to have these things called marriage contracts, where it's death do us part or 50 years. <laughs> yeah. But we'll see about Contract that.
1: after 50 years.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. In small fine print at the end. Just, you know, don't ignore it. But I know you're writing a bunch of books, and we don't really have a lot of people who are talking about religion and all these future technologies. How can we get more people to learn about it? other than through the books that you're publishing?
0: Well, I mean, I am involved in efforts to get the religious communities engaged in the discussion, which is a way of getting it into the general population. One of the things I have really worked hard on in my scholarship is bringing in uh, scholars from different religions, from the karmic religions, for example. Judaism and Christianity has taken the lead, I guess, or is in the lead in terms of thinking about these questions, but I think all of the religions have to get engaged in this. And it's happening more and more. I'm seeing it more and more. And we really work, I work hard in the book that we just published to talk about the karmic implications, the implications with regard to karma, reincarnation of these various technologies. So the more religion can grapple with these questions, the more it's going to help us in the general public to address them.
1: So we don't want to take too much of your time. We're already hitting the 45 minute mark here. So just for the audience, if there's one thing you want people to take away from today's conversation, what would it be?
0: Well, a number of years ago, I was privileged to do a Himalayan trek. Headed into that trek, I was headed into a frontier that was wild and expansive and potentially dangerous and satisfying, very satisfying. And standing before the technology future that we have, it is wild, it is expansive, It is uncharted, and it is potentially satisfying and beneficial, and it also can be scary. I understand that for people. And I guess what I would say is let's work to put aside our fear and join together and make this a good trip, a healthy one and an enjoyable one. It's coming. Whether we like it or not, let's put aside our fear and work together to make it the best trip we can make. I guess that's my takeaway.
2: That's a good message. No, that's great. The
0: Himalayan trek worked out okay for me. Maybe the technological future will too for all of us.
2: Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. Oh, see, sounds interested in your work. Is there a website they can find all your work on or like your books that are coming out?
0: Well, the, the easiest thing is probably Google my name, Calvin Mercer and East Carolina University. Calvin Mercer, East Carolina University to get to my website and you can contact me there. Schedule permitting available for talks and so on. And the book is Religion and the Technological Future by Paul Grave McMillan, with a subtitle, An Introduction to Biohacking, Artificial Intelligence, and Transhumanism.
1: So for all of you guys listening, any links that Calvin just mentioned and we discussed throughout will be in the description below. And once again, thank you, Calvin, for coming on. I'm Immortal, your source for all things Immortal. We really appreciate you taking your time and speaking with us.
0: Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too.